If you're new here, uh, I am Curtis Hoffman, one of the elders here. Um, I was going to let the stand kind of just go by the wayside, Andy, not talk about it. <laughs> apparently, apparently, I need a booster, so okay. Might have to work on that phrasing. Stand, lift, something else. I don't like booster. Um, occasionally, I get to provide a different perspective on the sermon, on the passage this week. Um, Honestly, I struggled to go and work through this passage and find something that was um, applicable today, tying the two, um, they look like two distinct pieces, tying them together. Um, I believe I've got something that I can um, encourage you with, um, and we're going to work through it here uh, this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that your words would come through me today. I pray that my preparation uh, will honor your word and that my presentation will allow the truth uh, to be heard for the congregation today. In Jesus' name, amen. For the last couple of weeks, we've been working through uh, Luke 22, uh, which covers the last days before Jesus' crucifixion and death. Luke spends a lot of um, detailed time in this period Uh, Previously, throughout the book of Luke, there have been uh, a lot of times where there's gaps, days, weeks go by without any mention of of what's going on. Uh, But in here, we really see it really slows down um, the detail provided to us, which is is fantastic. We've had uh, just recently the Passover meal. Uh, We've had the preparation of the Lord's Supper, which we have the uh, honor of taking today. There's been a final discussion last week between Jesus and the disciples, and then the prayers on the Mount of Olives. Where we left off last week, uh, the crowd had gathered in preparation for Jesus' arrest. Before we jump into our passage for today, I wanted to highlight a a portion of last week's text uh, that plays very directly into what we have today. Jesus settled a silly dispute about the greatest, and then he told them how God had granted them a kingdom. Then Jesus called explicitly on Simon and said to pay attention, and Christopher highlighted that this utilized one of the yaws of Scripture. In verse 31, he said, Satan has demanded to have y'all to sift you like wheat, to test you. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is praying for Simon as one of his followers. He prays for his continued faith. He knows what's about to happen. And he knows that there's a failure coming. Because he says, when you have turned back. This certainly wasn't a planned failure on on Peter's part. Peter believed that he would follow Jesus to prison and to death. He had every intention and belief that what he said was accurate. Peter had a great zeal for the Lord and a belief that made him very powerful. What he's yet to understand when he said those things is the circumstances that Jesus is heading into that Jesus must walk alone as the perfect lamb and savior for mankind. 
Jesus is preparing Peter to care for the flock in the aftermath of his death. And if we look at this as one of the y'alls of Scripture, it's not just about Peter. We know that there's going to be failures in our lives. And as we strive to follow Christ, we need to be prepared to lift up others from our failure. In, in history and business, there's some quippy sayings um, on motivational posters. I'm sure you've seen them. Things like, the only real mistakes are the ones you learn nothing. Or, have no fear of perfection, you'll never reach it. That one, that one might be a demotivational poster, I'm not sure. <laughs> I like it. I might resemble that remark. Um, there's another one that I really like. Um, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. I think these statements, while not necessarily biblical, uh, can certainly have some meaning in our lives today, especially when we view them through a lens of Christianity. On that last quote, success is not final. So if you have a, a success over sin, we know that that doesn't mean that you've ultimately won the war. Satan is going to tempt you and test you. The Bible says so. Failure is not fatal. I wouldn't be standing here today if it was. We know all and have we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the penalty of that sin is death. So then, it's the courage to continue that counts. While this was probably said through the lens of, of war in our world, ours is a never-ending battle between heaven and earth. I think that Jesus talks about that continued battle in these passages. He talks about being tested by Satan and prays that we would continue to have faith, that we would return from our failures and strengthen the flock. We would return to our fellow Christians that we would use our lessons to build each other up and that those who are in community with us would learn from our mistakes. At work, we would call this type of uh, sinking of mistakes a lessons learned. In the military, it might be called an after-action report or a mission debrief. The funny thing is, and I see this at work all the time, is that lessons learned are easy to talk about very hard to implement change in our lives. It's very challenging. Our emotions and mindset can be challenging to change. That is why we need our brothers and sisters, the people sitting beside you today, to walk through those times with us. The portion of scripture that we're going to work through today is one of those times where I think Peter would have needed a little bit of a debrief afterwards. He would have needed to be lifted up and encouraged by his fellow disciples, and to share what he learned uh, through that hard time. His failure has been preserved for us, and we can learn from it um, as we move forward. Living in community with fellow believers can and should lead to that level of fellowship and discipleship. Let's read the first section of our passage today. Then they arrested Jesus led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. 
when they had made a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat down among them. So we're at the, we're at the high priest's house, and we're inside the courtyard. The religious leaders believed that they had grounds to discredit Jesus as our Messiah and, found, and wanted to find him guilty of blasphemy. Throughout his ministry, Jesus had skillfully maneuvered around all of these traps uh, when he knew that his time had not yet come. So what we have here is several people sitting around a fire, and Peter, Peter's brave enough to go in there and sit down with them. That, was, that had to take a lot of courage. We don't know Peter's motives here. Uh, maybe he was trying to prove that loyalty to Jesus. Maybe he was trying to figure out a way to get Jesus out. We know from our studies in the Gospels that Jesus had avoided capture, slipped through their hands many times. Even so, we also know, just from last week's text, that Peter was quick to think about a measure of force. He's unnamed in Luke, but the other Gospels all say that that was Peter. What I don't understand is the belief that he wouldn't even be recognized. He was very near Jesus during the confrontation in the garden and took a sword to someone's ear. So seems like he would have been pretty recognizable. But nonetheless, he was there, um, and he sat down with the people who were holding Jesus captive. Let's continue reading. Then a slave girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, stared at him and said, this man was with him too. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him. Then a little later, someone else said, you are one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. And after about an hour still, another insisted, certainly this man was with him because he too is Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. At that moment, while they, he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. So here we see the three denials of Peter. In a matter of a few hours or so, Peter had broken the very promise that he made earlier in the evening. His intentions, whatever they may have been, were broken, shattered. Based on the setting, I can see how the first two accusations would have been not been definitive. To me, firelight isn't the, the best light, and it can bounce and play tricks on your eyes. The third accusation, though, is believed to be primarily based on his accent, calling him out as a Galilean. As I thought about that, I, I thought about how if I had dropped a y'all or said something with a Texas accent, I probably would have gotten ridiculed by all my friends in high school. They would have looked at me like I'm crazy. I'll never forget when we uh, went back to visit uh, Ashley's family um, a few years after she had been teaching eight and nine-year-olds. So she was immersed in the, uh, in the language of Northeast Texas. That's right, Sandra. She dropped something with a y'all and a Texas draw, and my brother-in-law, without missing a beat, just said, y'all better understand, and he laid it on real thick, and 
<laughs> we just all laughed. That's what I'm picturing here as, as Peter is talking um, amongst the people. Accents can undoubtedly tell where someone is from, and the same was true from people from Galilee to the north of Jerusalem. I could imagine Peter just trying to hide his accent in that last denial. He'd try to strip out all the Galilean and tried to act all proper, but it just wasn't happening. So three accusations, three denials, uh, and a rooster crowing. Peter had just failed to be associated with the Savior. Again, we don't know his motives, but I can imagine that that realization was rough. But it gets worse. (laughs) Then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I get some chills when I I think about that because no words are spoken in that exchange. But the power of that look is just undeniable. Peter and Jesus catch eyes within the courtyard or maybe across the courtyard but close enough that the firelight exposes their faces. There was no mention of visual distance between Jesus and Peter until now, but we know that he's close enough to see each other. The person that you just denied, the savior of the world, the person that you've spent the last three years following, is looking you dead in the face. that That hits hard especially if I interpose myself in that situation. I can't imagine that that look was one of condemnation or I told you so. No. I think it was more like, Peter, I know that this hurts. I must die to cover the sins of the world. I know it hurts. But when you recover from the pain you're feeling, use this as a teaching moment. Use this to strengthen other Christians. He told him so earlier in, the, earlier in the evening. But now the action met the words. Regardless of how the look was meant by Jesus or perceived by Peter, this moment just absolutely wrecks the disciple. The phrasing in verse 62 shows us that Peter did not want to fail here. He meant what he said earlier in the day, and was just overcome by emotion. Maybe fear drove him because he heard what the people were saying. Maybe he wanted to avoid prison and see his family again. Perhaps he just wanted to fit into the crowd. Maybe he wanted to stay in the courtyard a little longer and see what was going to happen to Jesus. Whatever the motive, doesn't matter. Peter failed, and it crushed him. He was crushed that it had been prophesied earlier in the evening, and then it had come true so quickly. He thought he was prepared, but in the end, at the moment of impact, Peter failed. This is the last we hear of Peter until the resurrection day. Only a few days, but again couple days of hiding out, 
I wondered where they might have gone, what he might have done. Scriptures don't tell us. I've often heard sermons or Bible studies that stop here. The conclusion is typically that, well, Peter failed. You're going to fail. Don't worry about it. But I think that misses the redemptive part of this story. While, yes, it's true, we're going to fail. The part that Jesus encouraged Peter about was that when he returns, strengthen your brothers. I believe that Jesus was admonishing Peter not to shy away from his upcoming failure, but to remember it and to use it with his fellow Christians. At work, we might call this uh, a type of feedback loop. And in a sense, this is almost a Christianity feedback loop. Now, can we get the graphic up? I know that this isn't a loop. Smart art only goes so far. (laughs) So just bear with me. You have to listen to the words. This is the kind of presentation where you can't take the packet without the words that I'm saying. When we fail, we're going to feel guilt, remorse, and grief. Ultimately, that guilt and remorse can lead us to repentance and then on to redemption or learning. After we learn, we can pass on that learning through discipleship. We don't often want to talk about failure. I know that I sure don't. But it can certainly help other Christians in their walk. Whether it's an empathetic year or recovery story, your story will be one that encourages someone and strengthens a part of the body. And since we are one body, we should strive to help the body thrive. At this point in the evening, uh, Peter exited the courtyard, and the proceedings for Jesus' trial fail. Trial continued. It's just Jesus and his captors from this point forward. Initially, I found these two passages to be loosely linked, but what I found after digging in was very interesting. What we're about to see is another set of three denials, but from a different angle and a different motivation. While Peter was trying to live out his loyalty to the Savior, the religious leaders were trying to protect their selfish interest by discrediting the Messiah, the person that they felt threatened by. Let's read the next section. Now the men who were holding Jesus under guard began to mock him and beat him. They blindfolded him and asked him repeatedly, Prophesy, who hit you? They also said many other things against him, reviling him. When the day came, the council of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the experts in the law. Then they led Jesus away to their council and said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? He answered them, You say that I am. But they said, Why do we need further testimony? 
We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Have you ever been part of a conversation, third third party to a conversation, where two people are talking, but neither of them are hearing what's going on? (laughs) That's exactly what what I hear when I read this. At the beginning, we see a game that often got played in this time where they would blindfold somebody. The men holding Jesus would hit him. And then they would ask, who hit you? These men knew the claim about what Jesus was, about who Jesus said he was. They taunted him. We know that Jesus absolutely had the power to answer the question. But again, Jesus knew that their ears were not open, that they were not ready or able to hear what he had to say. They might have just assumed, oh, lucky guess. Jesus took the path, took the taunts, and kept on the path. The council of, So that's the first denial with bad motivation. The Council of Elders is up next, and their intention is to find a reason to say that Jesus is blasphemed against God. They thought that they understood the God, that they were uh, protecting him. Jesus did not meet their preconceived notions of what the Messiah was going to be. He didn't fit the criteria of a conquering hero. Considering history, we know that they missed the mark. These men would have been looked up to as leaders in the faith, but they were way off. The first time they asked, if you are the Christ, just tell us. Positive affirmation at this point would have garnered a call straight to blasphemy from the men who did not believe. Jesus, though, as he's so, so keen to do uh, throughout, the, throughout the scriptures, he doesn't answer the question directly, but leads them down another path. He replied, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus' phrasing here would have signaled two different things to the religious leaders, a great respect for God and a shared authority with God. Jesus answered their question indirectly, and they, they listened a little bit because they said, Are you the Son of God then? Their inference from the Christ to the Son of God was due to Jesus' reference of being at the right hand of God. Sitting at the right hand was often a position of respect held by the eldest son of a family's patriarch. You say that I am, but you don't believe that. Anything that I can say wouldn't change your perspective or perception. And this is enough for the elders. They say, why do we need to hear anything further? I feel like this was their, aha, we got you now. But they totally missed it. Three exchanges documented for us of where the religious leaders were denying who Christ was. A complete rejection of the man who didn't fit their narrative because they had a preconceived notion of what the Savior and the Messiah was going to be. 
The evidence was clear, and we have it documented for us, but it wasn't being fully examined. Jesus had fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament, but because he wasn't relieving Roman rule or because he was loving the unlovable, they rejected him. We know that Peter's rejection, so let's look back at Peter, we know that Peter's rejection was just the opposite. Peter had followed Jesus for over three years. He loved Jesus in word, at this point in word. He was willing to go to prison and to death. And at this point in the story, he failed to affirm the Messiah to others. But we know that this was not the end for Peter. His denials were not fatal. We know that Peter continued on and returned to his brothers. He was redeemed and wrote us a few letters later on. He became a leader of the church and was persecuted for his continued exclamation of Jesus' name. The denials were not the end for Peter, but a new beginning post-resurrection. As we look at this portion of Scripture, it can be easy to be hard on ourselves and beat ourselves up over the failures that we have day in and day out. I know it can be easy to fall into that sense that the goal is perfection. The goal is not perfection. The goal is a humility in failure that can strengthen our fellow believers. Share your lessons with each other so that you can build each other up. Tell your kids when you've messed up. Show them how to walk following Jesus. Sometimes we need to learn by experience like Peter. But when the community of Christ is acting as a unified body, sometimes we can learn from the lessons of others. Let's be a church that embodies not only learning lessons from bruises, because it's going to happen, but from shared experiences. Let's pray.